0: This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS.
1: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on The Wind Rises, the latest and if we are to believe him, the last film from the Japanese animation director Hayao Miyazaki. And joining me from Washington, D.C. Slate office to talk about The Wind Rises is Dan Coyce, senior editor at Slate. Hi, Dan. Hey, Dana. Uh, okay. So we have, we have a, a lot on our plate here with The Wind Rises. Um, you just told me before we got started that you saw it a second time and had dramatically different feelings than your first viewing. So I'm about to hear you unfold those. Um, before we get started, though, we should pr- maybe establish you and I are both, we're not getting a skeptic in the room here. You and I are both essentially venerators of Miyazaki's yes, peer, previous work, correct?
0: diehard Miyazaki fans. Um, I I loved him before I had kids, uh, and then having kids made me love him even more, both for what having kids revealed about the children in his work and for the way that my kids sparked to and fell in love with a bunch of his movies. So
1: Right. I mean, I think we would both agree, although it doesn't really apply to The Wind Rises, because this is not a kid's movie by any stretch, that he has this, this unique talent for tapping into some sort of vein of childhood that we don't often see in, in movies or literature and any work for children.
0: I agree. Although I think it maybe has slightly more to do with my reaction to this movie than you might think.
1: What uh, has slightly more to do?
0: His ability to tap into childhood as one of the problems I ended up having with this movie uh, was the essential, uh, like childlike status of its ostensible hero, um, in that I don't think that a a innocent, pure Miyazaki child uh, is maybe the right hero for a movie about a guy who makes war machines that kill millions of people.
1: Right. And so this this is the, the the problem that this movie is built around that you can I guess see as a problem with the movie or a problem that the movie is dealing with. I think I saw it more in the first way, but I, but it sounds like you have a lot to say about um about that that disconnect between this this innocent hero and the war machines he creates. But first we should go back and just quickly summarize what's going on in in The Wind Rises. So sure. um so the the hero, whose name is Jiro Horikoshi, am I getting that Jiro. right? Jiro, Jiro Horikoshi, Horikoshi yeah. uh, Is based on a real person. That is the name of a real person who was a Japanese aviation designer between the two world wars who wound up designing the Zero fighter plane. I'm going to get it wrong if I try to say any of the specs of this plane, but it was an important um, weapons delivery system in, in World War II for Japan. I mean, it was
0: the plane they, that Americans know as the plane that, like, blew up Pearl Harbor. Like that was the primary plane in the Japanese uh, aerial war effort um, for, especially for the first half of the war. That was, it was Zeros that took over most of Asia. It was Zeros that took over the Pacific Islands and it was Zeros that attacked Pearl Harbor.
1: Right. And so Horikoshi is, is the designer of the Zero, which on its face is an odd hero to have for your, for your animated movie right so we trace jiro's maybe from his late childhood through his early adulthood essentially the period in which he decides to become an aviation engineer goes to tokyo to study engineering and then begins the design for this plane but but the war has not started correct by the the time the the movie ends, correct
0: we see him the movie ends uh with the successful design of the predecessor of the zero um not the actual zero itself But although also a plane that was used in the war, but it ends before the war starts and it ends um, once again to to spoil um, with the death of Jiro's sweetheart, um, uh, Naoko. Satomi, who is a fictional character, invented for this movie, and the relationship between them is Miyazaki's major add-on to the real-life story of Jiro Horikoshi.
1: Right. There's apparently also some some um, of the history of a novelist, Tatsuo Hori, that's folded into this story, too. But it wasn't clear to me, researching it, exactly what details come from his life. But Tatsuo Hori was a Japanese novelist who wrote about this time, and who actually had a book called The Wind Rises, which in turn, as we'll get to, is a quote from a Paul Valéry poem that recurs throughout the movie. So so in some way, he's folding in two different stories of kind of Japanese heroes, but it also seems pretty clear that he's folding in some of his own life story. Not that he was an aviation designer and he was born quite a bit later than Horikoshi, but the story of this, this, this dreamy, artistic young man sort of growing up to become a professional creator of amazing things seems like it, it in some way echoes Miyazaki's own life.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, like all Japanese of Miyazaki's generation, he... He was not a part of the war exactly, but the war deeply affected him, right? It was it was the defining incident of his childhood.
1: Right. He's born in um, 1941. So you can imagine right. the Japan that he's growing up in is, is going to be essentially, you know, post-nuclear Japan. And although there's no direct reference to the nuclear bombs dropped on Japan here, there's an earthquake scene, a huge, disastrous, I think beautifully filmed earthquake scene that can't help but evoke, you know, that kind of, of mass destruction of a Japanese city.
0: Right. Uh, or, if you want to look at it slightly less charitably, the mass destruction of cities all over Asia wreaked by the Japanese Air Force.
1: So, how do you want to get into this? Do you want to start with the politics from the top? Do you want to talk about the anything that you liked about the movie first, or do you want there to start... There were so to...
0: many things that I liked about the movie. Sure, let's talk about those. So, uh, as you would expect, this movie is totally gorgeous, right? So, Miyazaki is definitely the best animator in the world, um, and... From big set pieces like that earthquake that you mentioned, which is a, a real 1923 earthquake that devastated Japan and in many ways set off the Japanese Depression, um, to little tiny moments like uh, this um, this beautiful moment when, um, uh, when Jiro re-meets his sweetheart, Naoko. They, they meet during this earthquake. They sort of meet cute during an earthquake when he helps rescue her maid. Um, But then years go by, and they don't really see each other, but then they um, re-meet at a resort one summer. Um, And there's this beautiful moment where she is standing by a square ceremonial pool, um, and he approaches her through the woods, and there's just this incredible, like, solitary insert shot of the river running through a narrow channel, Uh, in which the water and the fish in the water and the rocks around the water and the reflection of the characters is so beautifully animated that it just made me want to die. And the movie is filled with little tiny moments like that of exquisite, incredible beauty. And like all Miyazaki movies, it's also filled with a very endearing very apt depictions of human behavior, just the way that Jiro moves around a room or that scene where he gets a phone call that Naoko is sick and he runs back into his room to collect up all his papers and they scatter everywhere and he slips and falls. All those moments are so carefully observed and feel so real that it's it's very easy, as I did in watching this movie the first time, to simply take so much pleasure in the moment-to-moment animation and beauty of this movie that it basically eclipsed any other response I might possibly have had to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I spent the whole time watching this movie just sort of being amazed and saddened that this w- was his last movie. I mean, unless he's going to be like Steven Soderbergh, which I'm kind of secretly hoping, and that he's going to pop up and do 14 different TV series after this, because he does seem quite energetic and not done saying things. Yeah. He's already is,
0: sort of backed off his claim, actually, that this is his last movie. Like, he's he hasn't announced he's doing something else, but he has said, well, maybe it's not. Maybe I'll do something.
1: Right. Else. And it seems clear that he's still pretty much the head of Studio Ghibli, his production company, So, right. or Ghibli. I don't know how you pronounce it. How how do you pronounce it? I have no idea. Soft G, hard G. It's like it's like GIF. We have no idea, right? Right. <laughs> so, but I think he is still, you know, involved in projects like From Up on Poppy Hill and The Secret Life of Arietti and, and those things. Um, right. But why am I talking about that? Oh, because to choose this for his last movie is just it just seemed like a very very dark choice. Essentially, this is the story of a man looking back over his life and wondering whether what he did is worth anything, right? And what, wondering whether what he did w- did any good for the world. And in the case of this character, you know, whether the harm that he brought was, was far greater, which it seems like it sort of incontestably was. So it's, just, it's, it's a very dark valediction for an artist to, to make it as his last statement.
0: See, I would argue with that a little bit, because I feel like a real flaw of the movie is that it does not contain any looking back, either on Jiro, the hero's part, or on Hayao Miyazaki's part. Like, I didn't view this as a movie about a character looking back on his life and accomplishments and trying to figure out if they were worth it. In this movie, there's only a very brief moment at the very end in which Jiro expresses any even understanding of what is to What happened to those planes that he made and by extension, the pilots inside them and by very tenuous extension, the people they bombed and killed. There's a moment right at the end of the movie where he says none of those planes ever came back when in a dream sequence, he is watching all his zeros fly off in the horizon. Um, But that is the only retrospective moment in the movie. Now, there is tons of foreshadowing. As you note in your review, there are tons of moments in which the future intrudes upon the present. In dream sequences or in visions or in other moments, we see the fact that Giro is becoming aware that these machines he made, the beautiful planes that he designs, that he loves simply for their form and their function in the air – war machines and that that is what their eventual use will be but we don't really ever get any moments of Jiro wrestling with this at all and we certainly don't get any moments of him looking back on this time and thinking what was it that I did what was it that I wrought and that I thought was a real flaw of this movie as far as this movie is concerned the story of Jiro Horikoshi ends before the war even begins and it has more, just as much to do with his tubercular sweetheart as it has to do with the millions of people killed across Asia.
1: Right, and there's and, a romantic and nostalgic tone to many parts of the movie, not not the war parts. I mean, I would, I would, I think you would agree with me. I would say that the war scenes that we see and the scenes of, of the devastation of the earthquake as well that sort of recall war are are extremely anti-war. I mean, there's not any sense of, of jingoism or nationalism in the movie.
0: I but. I can't tell. This is part of the problem that I have with this movie is that it is so subtle and I think that so much of its specific commentary on Japan's relationship to the war and Jiro's relationship to the things he made, I think so much of that is culturally specific in a way that would potentially be understood by a Japanese audience but is almost completely opaque to me. And so that scene in the beginning when when you know Boy Jiro's having a dream and he dreams of a huge possibly german airship with anthropomorphic bombs floating off of it and one of them breaks his plane. Like I guess that's anti-war sort of, but I I can't walk away from that scene feeling like oh i understand what it is that hayao miyazaki has to say about the use of airplanes in war i can't walk out of that scene feeling that way i feel slightly disconcerted and i feel interested and i feel like it was it was a beautifully made thing but the cultural specificity of this movie to me was a real impediment toward feeling like the movie had anything to say politically and and I don't know if that is like a feature or a bug. You know, I don't know if that is what – I don't know if Hayao Miyazaki meant for this movie to really be this elliptical uh, and to approach this issue of importance to millions of people in such a sideways manner. Or I don't know if it's simply that I'm not capable – due to my particular cultural context of understanding what are what would otherwise be very clear messages that he's sending.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that this is this is a movie that feels more closed off and more kind of Japanese in some some way that's inaccessible to a Westerner who doesn't know that culture and language. Than, than any other of his movies I can think of, and, and it, right. it, it has, of course, most of the protest against this movie has risen up in Asia. It's the Koreans and the Chinese and others who experienced over the course of the 20th century war atrocities at the hands of the Japanese who feel like this movie is politically irresponsible.
0: Right, and and so, and you know, one of the one of the things that's really interesting about the release of this movie in Japan. So this was a huge hit in Japan. Um, it was the highest grossing movie of the year, and. And many of Miyazaki's movies do. I mean, they are often the highest grossing movies of their year. I think Ponyo made like more than Titanic in Japan. And but, was it um,
1: praised by the Japanese press and by critics in general? It
0: seems like there was some split even in Japan that people had a little bit of trouble dealing with this movie even there. And it was, what was particularly interesting to me was that accompanying the movie's release, Miyazaki wrote a widely shared and spread op-ed. Decrying sort of the militaristic rightward bent of the current Japanese government. So it's unclear to me whether he wrote that as as um, as an amplification of what he viewed the message of this movie to be, or as a clarification of a message that he was realizing or that he intended to be specifically right as a corrective in the context almost. of this art. Right. It's so it's just all it's all very foggy to me and in general fogginess is something i prize in my movies but in this particular case it felt on the second viewing like fogginess is a real problem with a movie that touches on something that was this deadly and this horrible to this many people and what i kept coming back to was what if 60 years from now some beloved the, you know, the American, the 60 years from now version of John Lasseter made a beautiful uh, movie about the innocence and idealism of the guy who designed the Predator drone. Like, would that be cool?
1: Right. Well, yeah, that's that's a, that's a great analogy. But I think another way to look at this movie, you, I mean, you cannot deny that this movie is suffused with, with war, right? And with the grimness of war. As, as you say, from the earliest dream sequences, the dream sequences... That Jiro has about building these wonderful planes start to be infected, right, by these images of of, of sort of monstrosity or of planes exploding or of battlefields.
0: I can kinda of deny it. I I think that they are few and far between and vague enough that that they don't convey any real message to me. But I like that interpretation of the of war imagery infecting his dreams of flight, but the movie still nonetheless ends with him talking to his, uh, the Italian um, aircraft designer Caproni, who he dreams about over and over again. Who's sort of his imaginary be- buddy, right? Right. Uh, they're still talking about the beauty of airplanes.
1: <laughs> yeah, but like, it's, it's not right. like their
0: last conversation is about, oh, look at the horrible things we have wrought. Right. It is, oh, too bad those planes didn't come back. Not even the pilots. Those planes did not come back, Giro says. And then they talk some more about how planes are beautiful. Yeah. so, yeah, so, but yes, I'm sorry i'm like I'm debating the point unnecessarily. You are right that there is imagery of war that pops up and infuses especially his dream sequences. So tell me if you felt like those made a clearer statement than I thought they did.
1: I completely agree that there is a fogginess about the valence of the war not not whether it's pro war anti war but sort of Jiro's responsibility for his creations. But I also question whether. It has to be the hero introspectively looking back and judging in order for this movie to have something to say about war. In other words, this felt to me like it was made with some sort of very long term historical glasses on, on Miyazaki's part where he was looking at a whole century worth of, of war and destruction as a sort of tidal way that overtook this one person whose story he's telling and also many other people. If you see what I'm saying, I mean, he's sort of watching the 20th century sweep through Japan. That's the wind that's rising, right? And and create all this damage and destruction and and swept up in it is this arguably overly innocent and overly naive and absent-minded character that he arguably identifies with overly much, but that (sighs) it doesn't necessarily have to be the case in an epic, you know, in something that's sort of a sweeping political epic of this scope that the individual hero sits and, you know, introspectively goes over his life and, and regrets. And that, again, could be a cultural thing. You know, maybe as Westerners who are so invested in the subject and, you know, in, in introspection and, in art, we want to see that happen. And maybe Miyazaki doesn't need to see it happen in order to make the statement he wants to make. Does that make right. sense?
0: No, it totally makes sense. And you're, and you're absolutely right by extension that had Miyazaki made some version of this movie that featured old man Jiro thinking pensively about what he did, I maybe would have hated that. Like who knows. But I do think that it is it is really tricky to make a movie about the wave of the 20th century sweeping over Japan and catching innocence in its wake when For most of Asia, Japan was the wave of the 20th century sweeping over it and catching up innocence in its wake. And the the planes that Jiro designed were the tools of that wave. They were the wave. They came in waves and they killed millions of people. And so it's just so – I guess the fact that this movie is so hard to parse is a real recommendation of it in that way and that it is – it is, as you say, not a movie specifically for children, not because it's particularly violent or scary, but because it's unbelievably complicated morally in a way that I think would I would have a really hard time explaining to my children because I'm obviously having a hard time explaining it to myself or to you or to our listeners.
1: Yeah, I would mean, um, I would actively advise against showing this to your child. And in addition because I think it would be really really boring for any kid well, except yes. except maybe an older child who was really interested in military history and planes or something, but Right. But there's just, there's a lot of scenes about engineering. (laughs) There's a lot of scenes of adults sitting around smoking and talking about adult things. And there's just nothing very playful or kid-like about anything except the dream sequences, really.
0: Right. It's like in in most Miyazaki movies where there would have been like a playful interlude of someone going on a, a magical journey somewhere... Jiro and his buddy go to Germany and sneak around inside planes to look at what their fuselage looks like.
1: All right, like this... That's,
0: this, that's this movie's idea of a magical journey.
1: <laughs> All right, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then we'll get back to The Wind Rises. So this week, the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it easy and fast to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, you can go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILER. Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and better support. They have beautiful designs to start with and every style option you need to create a unique website for you or your business. It's very easy to use, but if you want some help, they also have an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their service starts at just $8 a month, and it includes a free domain name if you sign up for one year. You can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Then when you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code SPOILER to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the Spoiler Podcast. We thank Squarespace for their support. All right. So back to The Wind Rises. You know, I was thinking that we should mention before we get back into it that we have not, unfortunately, heard any of the English voice performances in the dubbed version of this movie because both of us saw it in Japanese. I subsequently tried to get a screening of it in English and wasn't able to find one. So most Americans are going to be seeing this with the voices of a pretty impressive American voice cast, including Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Jiro, the main character, Emily Blunt as his girlfriend who becomes his wife, Uh, Who else is in there? Martin Short as his boss. John Krasinski as his buddy that he sits around smoking cigarettes with for hours on end. Um, But we don't know what any of those people sound like in their voice performances, unfortunately.
0: And apparently also Werner Herzog as the mysterious German who shows up in a mountain retreat and drops dark hints about the future of the German military and then disappears.
1: Yes. I really want to see it in English only to hear Herzog's voice performance as the mysterious German engineer.
0: Also, according to Wikipedia, Ronan Farrow is in it as some random Mitsubishi employee.
1: <laughs> Where is Ronan Farrow not these days? He's everywhere. So. <laughs> There's not an art, one of the seven arts, that he's not invaded.
0: So, um, let's. Uh, you mentioned that Emily Blunt is the voice of Naoko, his girlfriend turned wife. What did you think of that romance? You know, the the romance is a part is a big part of this movie. And in fact, the second half is mostly about Jiro, sort of balancing his. The goal of designing this plane to a specific deadline that the government has set and also caring for his girlfriend who turns into his wife who is very ill. Um, how did you feel like that worked in this film?
1: I mean, I have to say on the first viewing, it, it, it wasn't the war stuff that bothered me as much as the romance. I wouldn't even say bothered, but just bored. I think that the romance is one of the weaker parts of this movie and which makes the second half less interesting than the first because the romance becomes more and more important. It, again, it feels it feels formulaic and it may again be a cultural difference of some kind. It may be that some of the what struck me as kind of cliched romantic tropes showing the two of them falling in love would have a different valence for a Japanese audience or that they invoke some sort of fairy tale or folklore or story that I don't know about. But I sort of felt like I'm only caring about this romance because, you know, I know that the romance must be an important element in the story, not because the specificity of these two characters seems to bring them together.
0: Yes, I agree. Like, I loved the way that they met. But everything else about that romance basically left me cold, with the exception of I did really like their wedding, which is conducted sort of in secret and on the spur of the moment um, by Jiro's boss. Who is this very funny um, short little guy with crazy 1930s parted in the middle hair and little eyeglasses who's voiced quite appropriately by Martin Short in the English version, I should imagine, um, but who's one of like the only characters in this movie who offers little bits of comic relief. And he is like a real grump who grudgingly grows to accept that Jiro is just a flat-out genius and that he really actually cares about him. And so the wedding that is conducted at their home is a very sweet and beautiful moment, I thought. Uh, wrapped up in a big, fluffy, nothing romance that I didn't care about at all.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a long scene where he makes her a paper airplane, remember that? And, and flies yeah. it up to her on the roof. And then there's this crazy thing where the paper airplane gets stuck in a tree or something, and he like climbs this roof to get the paper airplane and risks his life to prove that he loves her. And right. my viewing companion, when I saw it, was saying, can't he just make another airplane? He's an aviation engineer. <laughs> 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 Don't risk your neck, Jiro. That's but, an
0: excellent point. Take how you... the war would have changed, though, had... And he's just <laughs> fallen off that balcony. Maybe that's the counter-historical version of this movie that Hayao Miyazaki should have made.
1: So, wait, what did you like about their, their meet-cute? Is it is it this about the Paul Valerie poem?
0: Um, yeah, a little bit. I like that. I mean, I like that moment with the poem. And I liked that it happened in the midst of this earthquake, which I thought was beautifully animated. And I also liked it. So what happens is this earthquake happens and Jiro... Um, Nyoko and Jiro are on the same train. The train stops when the earthquake hits and Nyoko's maid breaks her leg. And Jiro helps them. He carries them back to their town where he carries her back to their town where they come from. Um, A journey of many miles, it seems at the same time that a flood of refugees is sort of scattering from the epicenter of this earthquake across Japan and as fire spread across Tokyo. That's a spectacular
1: Um, segment of the movie, I have to say. It's probably like a 15, 20 minute segment of them meeting on the train and then the earthquake happening and then subsequently a fire bursting out and then all these refugees leaving the city. And it's incredible. I mean, it really is like something out of a, a Technicolor widescreen epic. Right. But it
0: starts very modestly, as you note, with them sharing this Paul Valéry line that they both know for some reason, which I can't remember, but maybe you can.
1: I know the line in French if you want to hear it. Yes. Because I just researched it for for writing about the movie. Le vent se lève, il faut tenter de vivre. The wind rises, we must try to live. It's from a a very famous poem called The the Sailor's Cemetery by Paul Valéry.
0: So the wind in general is a visual motif that runs through this movie beautifully uh like i've never have really seen a movie that animated wind quite so well
1: he's always Um, into wind right i was thinking that the beginning of kiki's delivery service is all about wind too it's it's her lying in a field listening to the radio and the wind is moving the grass around
0: yeah uh and well i mean wind obviously affects flight which is the the great subject of hayao miyazaki's career um but yes but so in the context of this movie right there are all kinds of different possible meanings for the wind rises we must try to live there is the wind uh or the tidal wave of the 20th century sweeping over Japan. Um, there's the wind of Japan sweeping over Asia. Uh, there's the wind that affects those planes that uh, that that Jiro makes. There's the wind that is those planes. Uh, wasn't the I, I mean, wasn't the Japanese um, aerial effort wasn't it wasn't isn't kamikaze described something as like a wind from heaven or a mighty wind or something like that? It's probably not a Mighty Wind. That was a movie by Christopher (laughs) Guest. Um, But, you know, there are all kinds of meanings wrapped up in that. But I did like simply that moment of them sharing something that meant something to them. But it was the only moment where I felt like they actually shared anything. I mean, later it's just scenes of her lying under a sleeping bag and holding his hand and telling him that she likes it when he works.
1: Right. I mean, she becomes a very passive character later on because she gets tuberculosis and she's dying and she becomes like you know like Mimi from La Boheme or something. She exists in order to cough, you know, and right. look, look beautiful and be dying. Right.
0: But she doesn't even have any songs. Like at least Mimi has a song.
1: One thing I wanted to say about the earthquake before we moved away from it was about how the sound was done in the earthquake. Did you notice? I mean, the earthquake is sort of personified, right? It's personified right. Miyazaki style. There's not an actual monster that is the earthquake, but the earthquake behaves like a monster. And so you see these, these cracks, these kind of red, you know, lava-filled cracks running through the earth. And as you do, you hear this incredible sound that when I was reading about the movie, I realized it was done with voices. They decided to do all the nature sounds vocally with human actors. In fact, Miyazaki wanted to do some of the sounds himself, and he kind of auditioned, and they didn't think his voice was right. But they got <laughs> people to, be, to make all those, you know, those like scary earthquake sounds and stuff. And I think that's part of what gives that scene such a kind of like an organic feel you know it just it feels like the, the earthquake is really rising up from the earth it doesn't feel like a special effect
0: right well and that's one of the moments where the otherness and japanese of this movie it really works for it right and that that the sound in that scene immediately calls to mind all the different times in miyazaki movies that we have seen the um the physical Manifestations, the animate manifestations of natural phenomena, like all the spirits in Spirited Away and all the spirits in Princess Mononoke. There is always this sense that in Japan, I think, based solely on Miyazaki movies, of the natural world being an active force in the lives of people. Um, and it's a coincidence that this movie came out so quickly after the earthquake and tsunami. Uh, that devastated Japan, but I have to imagine that that specific scene of the 1923 earthquake and the the personified force of its destruction must have been extremely potent for Japanese audiences. And in this case, I could get that, like I can make those connections. But in the end, my frustration with the movie was there were all these other places where I couldn't make the connections due to either some failure of mine or simply my my blunt Americanness or whatever. And and so the movie felt like a fuzzy treatment of a very specific and dire individual situation
1: yeah i think i i think i agree i mean i think it was fuzzy in exactly the places that it needed not to be fuzzy and i guess the question would be does the movie even know that it's being fuzzy you know is it glossing right. over and alighting things on purpose or is it there that there are actual blind spots you know in the creator's memory and imagination the things that he can't confront or look at or see
0: that's a great question. One that I sort of struggle to think about with Hayao Miyazaki, who I think of as a guy without blind spots.
1: Yeah, but it's the first time he's taken on something like this, It's right? It's the most autobiographical of his works, I would say. I haven't seen yeah. every one of his movies, unlike you, but there there isn't another time that he's taken on something this adult and this close to his own biography, I don't no, think. No,
0: I don't think so, no, no.
1: All right, well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. And, and as, as far as recommending it or not, I guess I would just say, if you love Hayao Miyazaki, you should definitely see this film. Would you agree?
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean... It is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen on a screen, and it is deeply troubling in weird ways, and it's a must-see for both those reasons.
1: But I would also say that if you've never seen a Hayao Miyazaki film and you're wondering what the fuss is all about, you shouldn't start with this one, because it might take away your mojo to explore some of the more playful, joyful, childlike ones.
0: Yes, there are a million Hayao Miyazaki movies worth seeing for First, if you have not seen anything else, just
1: throw it out there because I know you're, you, you love to recommend. What should people start with?
0: Oh, I mean, if you have kids, little kids, you should start with My Neighbor Totoro. If you are an adult without kids you, or you have older kids, you should start with Spirited Away, both of which are straight up masterpieces uh, that will live forever in my soul.
1: Completely agree. And I think if you have a middle kid, if you have a kid who's, you know, old enough to to follow a movie with a real story, Kiki's Delivery Service is a pretty fantastic coming of age movie. Really one of the best movies I've ever seen about late childhood and that feeling of beginning to separate from your parents and grow up.
0: Yeah, I love that movie, too. Oh, God, they're all so good. Maybe maybe he should just make another one. Are we agreed that he should just make another one?
1: I think he will. I have a feeling that he will have his hand in something enough that we haven't seen our last from him. And I sort of hope we haven't because I agree whether you love this movie or not, it it is a grim ending to it to a brilliant career
0: yeah thanks Dana
1: thanks a lot for coming in Dan come and spoil something again soon I sure will our producer is Chris Wade the executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers for Slate.com I'm Dana Stevens
0: it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper